Amen. Well, you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. That's the text that the Lord and his providence has given us this morning as we've arrived here while making our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. We're in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, and the Lord is going to do a wonderful work in us this morning as we look clearly at his word. So let's start by reading it. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What a section. What a unit of text. Now note that what we're seeing in this particular text, what we're seeing here in these particular verses, is Jesus bringing a transition. He's bringing about a transition from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. That's the main point of this section. What Jesus is doing here is bringing about a transition from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. That's the authorial intent of the section, which is why I've entitled the message, Transition to the Lord's Supper. That's what's taking place here. Jesus will be the final Passover sacrifice in just 24 hours, and they will remember him now on. They will remember him from now on. And so Jesus is bringing about a transition here. What we're seeing in this section, what we're being told of in regards to this meal is more than Jesus just obeying by celebrating the Passover. There's more than that here. We're being told of a transition taking place. And this transition is intertwined 
Lord's Supper is, is intertwined with the Passover meal to clearly show that this, here, this is a, a transition taking place. And the sign and the, the, the symbolism that's taking place here is pointing to and will point to the death of Christ, which will be the final sacrifice of God for God's people to escape judgment. It'll be a permanent substitute for deliverance. It'll give final deliverance, final substitute giving final deliverance, a permanent substitute, no further substitutes, no further sacrifices to be given. And from now on, they will remember one sacrifice until the Lord returns. This is a transition taking place. And so this is momentous. This occasion right now is, is unparalleled. This is the new memorial. That's what's taking place here. A new memorial. A new commemoration ceremony that will last until the Lord comes. This is uh, something that will not then be celebrated annually, but as Jesus says, it will be celebrated often. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. This Lord's Supper will not be given to national Israel as the Passover was. It'll be given to believers, to the church, to true disciples. It will signify a continued remembrance of the new covenant by grace through faith. This transition here that we're seeing, it signifies a transition from the old covenant, the entirety of the Old Testament, to the new covenant, to what is the center of the New Testament, the death, the sacrifice, the substitution of Christ. This is what will be established at the point of Jesus's death. And that's what they're transitioning to celebrate. You have to understand that this moment could not be more significant. It really couldn't in terms of what it symbolizes. This forthcoming, predestined, perfect, permanent, effective substitute and sacrifice who will sufficiently pay for the sins of man, satisfying the wrath of God, is the fulfillment of the Passover and should be remembered until the Lord returns. This is what this institution of the Lord's Supper is making clear. And all of this will point us to the cross being a divine plan. This was the plan. This has always been the plan. God has been setting this up from the beginning. Every detail under divine control and divine sovereignty. Similar to the past few weeks where we've just seen this sovereignty, this control, this obedience, this fulfillment, finality, this wisdom, this divine efficacy. All of this we've seen. God is accomplishing. 
accomplishing his plan will accomplish his plan. This is the plan. And this points us to a permanent transition in which God's people will will remember this. So Christ makes this transition here. And it becomes clear that God is orchestrating all of this under divine sovereignty. He's orchestrating the death of his son as the sufficient payment for sin. To satisfy his wrath and provide salvation for repentant sinners, those who would believe. This is what will occur at Christ's death. He'll be the payment. And this is what true disciples, listen now, true disciples will remember from now on. And so, I wonder if if you have understand, submit, trust in wholeheartedly, appreciate, trust in by faith. This substitutionary atoning work by Christ that he calls his true disciples to remember. Have you trusted in this by faith? And so let's look at Jesus make this transition. We're going to see this transition to the Lord's Supper for his disciples through three points. First, in this message, We'll see the timing for the Passover, verse 14. Secondly, we'll see the ending of the Passover, verses 15 through. And then thirdly, we'll see the beginning of the Lord's Supper, verses 19 through 20. Listen now, ready? This is really important, and there's a whole lot here, okay? You're going to have to buckle in. And hold on tight. This is what is happening. We're going to see the timing for the Passover, verse 14. The ending of the Passover, verses 15 through 18. And the beginning of the Lord's Supper, verses 19 through 20. Divine sovereignty on display. Christ as a sufficient payment for sin on display. Let's start with the timing for the Passover. Verse 14, verse 14, it says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. When the hour came, he reclined at table, the apostles with him. That's what's taking place here. And this is where we see the timing. Verse 14 is referring to time. Now, if you've been with us for a little bit, we've seen a lot of timing references lately, lately, haven't we? There's a lot of references to timing lately, right? This is important. All that is significant. We're seeing divine sovereignty on display, perfect timing at every point. Luke is giving us a picture of God's complete, sovereign, divine control. This has meaning. This has significance. The timing makes clear the meaning. And so Luke does this again. This time it's a little bit more simple. Verse 14 starts with when the hour came. Look at it. Look down at your Bible as we're walking through it. Verse 14 says when 
the hour came. Now, this is pretty straightforward. It's not the same as Christ saying, my hour has come. This is not a, uh, the, be- the end or the beginning of a, a season that he's indicating here or, or anything of that sort. It's very simple. It's the time for the Passover meal. When the hour came, what hour? Well, the hour to eat the meal. Very simple. It's simple. It's time for the Passover meal. This is significant. It's time for the Passover meal. It's time to eat. That's what he's referring to here. It's, so we know. It's sundown. It's Thursday. This is when they would remember the Passover. It's remember Wednesday, he refuted all the leaders. Luke gives us this summary at the end of 21, verse, uh, chapter 21. Wednesday night, we see the scheme of Judas. That happened Wednesday night. Thursday morning, they begin the preparation for the Passover. If you were here last week, coming in from Bethany into Jerusalem, Peter and John preparing all day, sacrificing around three to five. Evening comes, darkness comes, time to eat. That's what's taking place. Now it's prepared. The time came for the meal. So what Luke is indicating right now is that the Passover meal is center stage. The Passover meal, you should note that that's what's taking place right now. The Passover meal. That's why Luke is giving us this information. You should note that. You got to know this. You come to the conclusion, okay, we're at the Passover meal. Significant, as we'll see in a few moments. You should know this. So they're in the upper room. It's furnished. It's prepared, and it's time to eat. Jesus, before sundown, would show up to this room with the other 10. Remember, two there already. 10 more plus Jesus. Altogether, make about 13. Matthew's account is clear. Matthew 26, 20 says they began reclining at the table when it was evening, So we know that this is evening. The time when the hour came to eat is evening. And Mark's account says he came when it was, what do you think? Evening. And so this is where this would begin, this long evening with the disciples. John 13 through 17. Don't go there now, but it would be a wonderful adventure for you to walk through John chapters 13 through 17, where they, Jesus spends this final time in the upper room with the disciples. And all of that will be interwoven with this meal. If you know from reading the four gospel accounts, which all give us the picture of this upper, upper room, it's really difficult to have any clarity about the order of events in the upper room. All of that teaching in John 13 through 17, all of the teaching that you'll see here from the upper room is all intertwined with this supper taking place. That's how it would work. It would be a long evening, 
of eating and teaching. And so the order is not really important. All you got to know is this, is this is the event. This is the Passover. This night later on, he's going to be betrayed and arrested. That's going to happen. John tells us in 1330, John 1330, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that as well. Jesus was betrayed and arrested at night. And so he's here and the time has come to eat. And he, verse 14, reclined at table. Reclined at table. This would be a long meal. And the apostles were with him, verse 14 says. Sequence of this night, I'm going to explain to you very briefly this morning in just a few moments. But it would be interwoven of this eating and this instruction and this discourse. They would recline at this on these couches, this furniture, to eat. And it was a long table with couches that would be near the table. The head would be nearest to the table, and the feet would be away from the table. Remember in, in, uh, in just a, f- a few verses earlier, we were told that the room was furnished. And so they were reclining on this furniture. And, um, and, and this was actually different. This was different. This position, this posture was different than it was originally instituted. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, we won't turn there now, but Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, it says that the Passover should be eaten in haste. They had the the staff and, and the sandals on their feet, and they were ready to symbolize the exodus of getting ready to leave. And so over time, this would become more relaxed don't really know why and it would be interwoven with teaching and and eating and so now they're not standing with haste they're reclining at the table and also in Exodus chapter 12 and verses 43 through 46 this whole lamb would have to be eaten during this time the whole lamb and uh and I mentioned to you also last week that no foreigner would take of it no uncircumcised person could take of it, which the imagery just explodes in terms of only believers as we transition to the Lord's Supper can take of it. And so as Luke here, it says that he, the hour came, verse 14, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. This was significant because remember, I told you the whole had to be eaten. And so traditionally, because of that, because of what Exodus 12 tells us, there would usually be no less than 10 people there and usually no more than 20 people there. And make sure everyone gets enough and make sure all of it is eaten. And this is perfect because it's Jesus and the apostles. There's 13 there. Everything's perfect. This is the event of the Passover. The meal is center stage. We're in the upper room. Luke's focus is upon you knowing that that's the event that we're currently sitting in right now. There's obedience. There's control. There's perfect orchestration because of what this Passover will lead us to. And so soon enough, he'll make this transition. Now that we've seen the timing here, 
Let's move to Jesus eliminating the Passover. Verses 15 through 18. The ending of the Passover. And by ending, I mean not of the meal. We've got some time to go before that happens. But the ending of the ceremony of the Passover. This is important. Verse 15, look at it. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. A lot here. So before the meal starts, verse 15, Jesus says something. This is before the meal starts. We know this because of what comes after, and I'll point that to you. But this is before the meal starts. He said to them, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It says here, and Jesus here is, is using repetition in the, in the way that this is, uh, in the way that he says this. Jesus is using the same Greek verb, twice in the same sentence. And so here's what he's literally saying. He's saying, verse 15, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. With desire, I have desired. It's an emphasis. He is emphasizing how important this time is, how essential this time is, how significant this time is to have this meal with you. This is what he's pointing to. Now, why is this so significant? That's what verse 15 points us to, is the significance of this meal. I have desired with desire, look at, look at the text, desired with desire to eat this Passover me, uh, over meal with you before I suffer. You see that, verse 15? Why is this so important? Well, teaching, yes. Intimacy with his disciples before he dies, yes. Farewell, yes. More so, transition. What's about to take place? The transition is unparalleled. That's the main issue at hand here. And so this is significant because there's a big transition that's about to take place. Verse 15, he says, that if this is essential, I've desired with desire to eat this Passover meal, that's where they're at, with you before I suffer. Again, divine control, sovereignty. What does Jesus know that's about to happen? He's going to what? Suffer. I mean, he knew this exactly. Jesus knows what's going to take place. You got to put that in your theological categories. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. This was the plan. He's going to suffer. He's got to eat the Passover meal. It's essential. He's got to make this transition. But just take a moment. Realize what he's saying. Before I suffer. He knows exactly what's coming. The cross was the divine plan of God. John 10, 18 says, Jesus says, no one 
takes my life. But I lay it down on my own accord. He's always known the plan. He's always known the details. He's always known the timing. This was God's plan and God's orchestration during this Passover that Jesus would become the Passover lamb and be sacrificed for sin. Jesus knows it. This is the plan. This is what he's come to do. 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20 and Revelation 13, 8 point us to the fact, now hear this, that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was the plan before the foundation of the world, that this lamb would be slain. This was the plan. This is what God intended for the Passover. This is what God intended the Passover to point to. So he's at the Passover and he's saying, I'm going to suffer. And we got to have this Passover meal before I suffer. Now we're getting this connection here between the Passover and his suffering. And this is what God has always intended the Passover to point to. Before he suffers, he must have this Passover meal. The Passover would be fulfilled in his suffering. You have to understand this. Listen now. God instituted the sacrificial system before the Passover. Okay? That was already established. But what the Passover would make clear when it happened is that you can be delivered from God's judgment by the death of an innocent substitute. The sacrificial system as the wages of sin. Listen, listen. The death as the wages and the penalty of sin was already established. What the Exodus, the Passover made clear is that God's people can be delivered from God's judgment through an innocent substitute. That's what the Passover would make clear. Through the death of an innocent substitute. God blessed us in Egypt. After 400 years, God sends this final plague to free his people, kill every son in Egypt. Everyone would be subject to this judgment unless you killed the lamb who was an innocent substitute put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of the house, having faith in that substitute to be the reason, in a sense, that God passed over you in terms of judgment. And this moving forward would be what they were reminded of at every sacrifice and every Passover meal. This would be the symbol that death is required, blood is required, and can be delivered from God's judgment through an innocent substitute. 
It would be acceptable. So every year they would celebrate this. They would remember this, the sacrifice of an innocent substitute. You could be delivered from God's judgment. Remember this? They would remember this when they would take the lamb to the temple, slaughter the lamb between 3 to 5 p.m., sprinkle the blood, take the lamb back, come and have the meal, and describe all this symbolism that's taking place. And yet, all of this, though it would be remembered, Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18, won't turn there now, points us to the fact, listen now, listen, listen. All of these sacrifices, all of these substitutes throughout all of these years were never sufficient to permanently pay for sin. They were not sufficient to permanently deliver God's people from judgment. They would have to be offered and offered and offered and offered again. And so this was pointing to a final, sufficient, permanent, innocent substitute that would come. John 1 tells us about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world permanently. So the Passover was a shadow. It's always been a shadow. And it's always been pointing to the death of Christ, which is the reality. If you had a, if, if you came to church one day and we were standing outside talking before the service starts and I just stood there staring at your shadow, talking to your shadow, uh, interacting with your shadow. Why interact with, savor the shadow when I have the reality of your beautiful face right here? Some of you are beautiful. The point is, all of it was just a shadow pointing to reality. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, before I There's a connection here. He's God's lamb. There's more shadow taking place. Remember, the unleavened bread would be eaten with the lamb. The unleavened bread representing the eradication of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, you are unleavened, now remove leaven. It points us to the fact that we, through this Passover lamb, have right standing with God. We're declared righteous. We're positionally right before God. And then we spend the rest of our lives being practically sanctified. We become what we already have been declared to be, perfected. These are all shadows pointing to the reality. What Christ is doing here, back to verse 15, as he points from the Passover to the suffering, is obedience to the shadow, which is this meal. Listen, obedience to the shadow in order to point to the reality. That's what's taking place at this meal. 
side note here. I don't know if you noticed this, but I did. This is priestly language. Sacrifice. For so long in Luke's gospel, we had kingly language. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's the coming king. What is king? We've had prophetic language. Him declaring this truth and speaking judgment upon the religious leaders. And now we have this priestly language. It's not all clear cut. It's all intertwined. Jesus fulfills all of those three roles, but it's just obvious here. Jesus is the priest, the great high priest, and he's the sacrifice that the priest puts forth. But this is priestly language. So listen now, Jesus, every year that he would celebrate this meal, 33 years that he was alive, he knew that when he turned 33, when he celebrated it this year, he would suffer as the Passover lamb. He celebrated every year of his life. He was obedient every year of his life. And every year he knew the last Passover would point to. He earnestly desired to obey the shadow in order to point to the reality. There's a transition here, and it speaks of sovereignty and control. Now look at this in verse 16. He says, for, or the reason, or the grounds, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 16, for the grounds or the reason, listen now, stay locked in with this, the reason why he just said what he said, I tell you, he says next, this is emphasizing his authority, emphasizing that what he says is true. I will not eat of it. It what? Well, the subject is the Passover that he just referred to. I will not eat over uh, of this Passover meal, he says, and this is the strongest Greek negative, never, ever, ever, ever again. He's not going to ever participate in it again, obviously, because he's dying, but it's more than that. He says, until it is fulfilled, look, in the kingdom of God. This is eschatological, meaning he's speaking of the future. He's speaking of the end. Listen now, listen. He's speaking of the consummation of all things. He is speaking of when the full result of his sacrifice and his suffering will be realized in the future kingdom. He's saying this meal, in a sense, isn't going to happen again. He's not going to eat of it, but nobody else legitimately will eat of it again until he suffers and then he returns to heaven. He effectively redeems sinners. Listen, he effectively redeems sinners through the work of his gospel and spirit. And then in the future kingdom, when he is united with all those who have been redeemed through his suffering, through his sacrifice, they will eat a meal together and celebrate 
the sufficient sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Jump to verse 18, he says the same thing. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The same thing. He references this twice. He will not eat again with his people until the full result of his sacrifice has been realized. It's going to do this redeeming work. This is speaking of the future kingdom. Matthew 8 talks about this future meal. You can look at it later. Listen. Luke 13 speaks of this future meal. Ezekiel 40 through 48 speaks of this future meal. Jesus is speaking of eschatology here, the, 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 the end times, the, the future. Unless you think that's out of place, it's not out of place. Listen, listen. In verse 21, he gave an entire discourse about the future. Now here in verses 16 through 18, he's talking about the future. Look down in chapter 22, just a few verses later in, chapter 20, in verse 28. Just look it down. Look down in your text, on, in your Bible. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may, what? Eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's been speaking about the future the whole time, the result of the sacrifice. So this is the end of the Passover. He's going to secure his salvation, and in the future, his people will eat with him. That's what's happening here. Verse 17. This is the beginning of the meal. This is the beginning of the meal. Verse 17. Okay, so if you're... You got to put these things together and understand now that we're at 17, he's starting the meal, okay? He's starting the meal. And it says this, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. This, listen now, this is where the transition will start to take place because what he will do is he will have the meal while pointing to the new meal. You see that? The new meal is interwoven with the old meal. And so he starts here. This is the beginning. We know that because of what he does here. Verse 17, he takes a cup, and when he had given Thanks. When he had given thanks. This is the beginning. Now listen, okay? Because this is interesting and significant. Here's what we know about the ordering of the meal. You got to understand this. Listen, okay? Here's what we know about the ordering of the meal. It would start with a prayer of thanks. That was called the Eucharisteo, which means, which we get the word what? Eucharist, it means to give thanks. That's what we're doing, even take the Lord's table. It would be a prayer of thanks. Then it would be a, a second step would be a, the first cup of doubly diluted wine. Okay? It's no drunken celebration of the Lord. This would be a cup of blessing. It would be shared. And it would 
first of the four promises, as I've told you before, from Exodus chapter six. There's four promises of deliverance in Exodus chapter six. Each of the four cups of the wine would represent that. So they'd give thanks. Then there'd be this first cup of deliverance that would take place. Thirdly, they would wash their hands. This would be a symbol of their need for cleansing. It would be a symbol of their need for cleansing. And now, I want to make a side note here. It was at that point, remember I told you we don't really know the order of the whole picture? Well, a lot of commentators say that it's at that point, washing of the hands, that the dispute among the disciples, which we see in this section here, takes place, which is who is the great. Okay? And what that speaks to us is that it's not just that they're referring to who is like the coolest. If it happens at that point in the meal, what they're referring to is who's the cleanest? Who's the most holy? In which then would believe that at that point, because of the context of the washing, Jesus responds to that by washing their feet. And what he says is, you aren't to be proud about who's the most holy. You are to serve one another. But if it's there in that context, then the picture is it's not just a general service of one another. It's a serving each other to make each other what? Holy. That's the picture. Jesus says, don't be proud of your holiness, but serve one another to make each other holy. And that's probably what's going on there because then Peter says, don't wash me, Lord. And Jesus says, I have to. And then Peter says, if you're going to wash the feet, wash the whole body that everything may be clean, holy. And so that's the, what's going on at that point. They'd wash. Number four, so they'd, this prayer of thanks, doubly diluted wine, Washing of the hands. Then they would eat these bitter herbs that would symbolize bitterness of slavery of Egypt. Then number five, they would sing the Hallel. This was the beginning of the singing. They would be singing from Psalm 113 to 118, but this first singing would be only Psalm 113 and 114. Then there would be the second cup of doubly diluted wine signifying deliverance. Then there would the seventh step, the father would, or the head, this case would be Jesus at the end of the table, which is this explanation of all the things taking place. Number eight, then, in the steps, they would eat the roasted lamb with the unleavened bread. Number nine, they would drink the third cup. Number 10, they would eat, or they would sing the Hallel, Psalm 115 through 118. And then last step is they would Drink the fourth cup. Now, you probably didn't get all of that. You can go back and listen. But here's why I think this is so significant. It involves two things. It involves the parallel to the gospel. And it involves where, at the point in the meal, Jesus makes the transition to the Lord's Supper. Very significant. Think about the parallel to the gospel. You start with this prayer of thanks. And this first cup, which is called the cup of blessing. And you think about creation. And you think about God making everything, what? Good. And that we would share in this blessing. 
But then comes the washing of the hands where they recognize and this symbol would be a need for cleansing, that though everything was created good, that man is a, what? Sinner. Then would come this eating of the bitter herbs, a resemblance of the bitterness of sin. Then would come this singing of the Hallel, where it's this singing to God. And here would be a, a crying out, in a sense. Then you come to this second cup of doubly diluted wine, which signifies deliverance. But at this point, it would be the need for deliverance. Think about this parallel. Then the father or the head would give this explanation. It's almost as if in the gospel, Jesus gives this information, this truth on how one can be delivered. And then it would be the eating of the lamb through which we are delivered. Then the third cup of deliverance signifying that we have been delivered. This singing of the Hallel and this thanks and then this fourth cup of deliverance and blessing signifying the eternal deliverance and eternal blessing of the people of God. I think the parallels have all been intentional pointing to the gospel. But can I tell you also at where Jesus makes the transition to the Lord's Supper is significant because we know that he makes the transition at the third cup because he does it after he distributes the bread. He distributes the bread, points to his body. He distributes the cup and it points to his blood. And so where the timeline is on that gospel parallel is exactly where Jesus makes that transition pointing to himself we know it's the third cup. So Jesus gives us the picture of, or Luke gives us the picture of the first cup. We're told nothing in between the first cup and the eating. Then it's the eating and then it's the third cup that we're told about. And then we're not told about the fourth, the, the, the singing and the fourth cup at the end. So this is significant where Christ makes the transition. And it's clear he makes the transition at that point because that's where they would eat the unleavened bread. So it's the third cup. And so what Jesus is doing, listen, all of this is significant, pointing to his suffering, the Passover's front and center. He's pointing to his, uh, again, his suffering. This has gospel parallel. This is interwoven. The, the, the Passover and the Lord's Supper is interwoven because we're making a transition here, which signifies what Christ has done. And so let's move now. Third, as Jesus does give this bread and this third cup while instituting the Lord's Supper. Number three, the beginning of the Lord's Supper, verses 19 through 20. And this is easy now. We've already done all the hard work. He took the bread, verse 19. This was the time of the eating of the, the lamb and the time of the bread being eaten. When he had given thanks, which they did before every aspect, he broke it. 
and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after he had, they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Transition taking place there. And gave thanks. This is what they would do, and this is what we do at the table. He broke it. Why? Verse 19, he broke it to distribute it. Now, get this right here. He broke it to distribute it because they would share in it. He didn't say, my body was broken for you. So when we describe the Lord's Supper, we don't say, we take of this because the Lord's body was broken. He says it was not broken, but what does it say? Verse 19. Delivered. It's significant because Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, John 19 told us that the bone of the sacrifice, no bone of the sacrifice should be broken. It should be a lamb without blemish. So don't say that because his body was broken for me. It wasn't broken. His body was delivered for you. He's just breaking it here to distribute it because we all share in it together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when you come together, so it should be done together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on the first day of the week, so it should be done when the Christians celebrate the Lord on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is why this has become a church ordinance. All right. So he's breaking it to distribute it. And he says his body is given for you. Now, listen. The last major picture here that you have to understand, this deliverance is significant. Let me say this. He says, look at verse 19. He took the bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. You have to understand this is not body in his hand. His body's at the table. It's bread in his hand. It's a symbol. So in Roman Catholicism, they would believe in something called transubstantiation. It's unbiblical. In Lutheran church, they would believe in something called consubstantiation, which is that it was his spiritual body, not his physical body. I don't even know what that means. But that's unbiblical as well. His body's at the table here bread. He's saying that this is a symbol for remembrance, just as the whole Passover was a symbol for remembrance. Jesus also said other things like, I am the door, right? It's a symbol of what he does. His body was not broken, but it was delivered. Now this is front and center in the context of the Passover. Lock in. This is front and, context, uh, front and center in the context of the Passover. He's saying, this is my body delivered for you, pointing us fully here to him as the lamb, pointing us fully here to the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He will be the perfect, innocent substitute who will take the place for deliverance for God's judgment. This is what he's saying here. To satisfy the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is the 
He is making the transition. Passover, now, permanent, final, perfect, substitute. He's making sure his disciples get what his death means. Substitutionary atonement. Innocent substitute for the deliverance of God's people. Permanent. No more Passover. Celebrate this from now on because this will last forever. No more sacrifices necessary. That's what he's saying here. And you have to understand, there's so much to that. You have to understand that the only way man becomes reconciled with God is not through you keeping the law. It's not through you being good enough, keeping God's law perfectly, or performing certain rituals. The only way righteousness before God are reconciled to God is by Christ, the price of your sin on your behalf, and you're trusting in that by faith. That's the only way that you have righteousness before God. That's what Christ is saying here, but let's finish this, verse 20. And likewise, after the cup, likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, again, it's not his blood. His blood is in his body at the moment. This is a symbol that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Not only does this point to substitutionary atonement, this points us to the new covenant. The substitutionary atonement secures the new covenant. Listen, this is the third cup. This is pointing to him being the sacrifice and he's saying that he, his blood secures the new covenant. Exodus 24, 8 says that the covenants would be ratified by blood, sealed by blood. His blood is securing and sealing the new covenant. Listen now, this is the covenant that God speaks about in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. This is a permanent salvation, a forgiven people that have a new heart and are kept by God that he delivers by his work and keeps them forever as his people. That's the new covenant. The, co the old covenant was of law and ceremony. Let me explain. You keep the law. If you don't keep the law morally, then you perform ceremony in order to atone for, in a sense, you disobeying the law. And so that's why you hear, you might be confused when you read the Bible and it says, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But then he says, I've come to abolish the law. What does he mean? Well, he's come to keep and fulfill the moral law so that he can abolish the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law in response to breaking of the moral law. That's why God instituted it. You break the moral law. And therefore, you have to perform these ceremonies over and over and over and over and over again for your whole life in order to, in some sense, atone for breaking the moral law. And what Jesus is saying here is no more ceremonial law, new covenant. You don't 
keep the law as the way in which you, you remain as God's people. Jesus provides a new covenant based on his deliverance with permanency that gives a transformed heart and that keeps you forever. You don't operate. You're not God's people by keeping the law anymore. You're God's people by his gracious work of him providing a substitute. You are new covenant people. He explains this. There's no more priesthood. There's no more temple. There's no more Sabbaths. There's no more dietaries, sacrifices. All the ceremonial law gone because in Christ, it is as if you've kept the moral law. You need no more sacrifices. The only sacrifice acceptable from God's new covenant people is the sacrifice of your life. You sacrifice your life in response to his perfect, permanent sacrifice. So, Jesus is reminding us of this. Jesus is pointing to this. Jesus is redeeming a people through his death that will transform a people. No more sacrifices. From now on, no more Passover. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is the only thing that you remember from now on. There's a lot of Jewish people who still celebrate it. And in a sense, it's okay that you could celebrate the Passover in terms of tra uh, tra like tradition. But listen now, listen close. If a, if a Jewish person is still celebrating the Passover in light of the fact that for them, the new covenant hasn't come, the Messiah hasn't come, then a celebration that's supposed to resemble deliverance is actually resembling their judgment because it means they've rejected the Christ. So this is what we remember from now on. He's made the transition. And let me tell you, the only way that you enter into this new covenant is by faith in this substitute. If you offer any other reason to God as to why he accepts you, then you just give evidence of your damnation. Only because of this substitute. You trust fully in this substitute for your salvation. God says to you, why, why should I let you into my kingdom? You say, because Christ died in my place. That's it. And you don't add anything else to it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with thankfulness. for this transition, for this substitute, for the gospel, for the new covenant. Let us always, continually remember this as the only sacrifice for our sins. 
I pray that we would be a people who understand this. And I pray if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in this substitute, that they would do so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.